Welcome everyone and Shalom from Jerusalem. This is Ashura Yosefa broadcasting live from the heart of Jerusalem and just a 20 minute walk from the Kotel. Today's class will be on returning to God. B'zrat Hashem, we will discuss Behra, free will, Teshuvah, repentance, and Hashgacha Pratis, divine providence. We have a lot of ground to cover. Any one of these three areas can easily encompass many classes. I would like to begin with an excerpt from a recent article by Rabbi David Aaron of the Israelite Institute here in Jerusalem. His article is entitled, The Mission of Torah. It will help set the tone for today's class. What is the mission of Torah? It is to overcome negative and destructive urges and choose goodness. Goodness that has been chosen is the highest form of goodness. We are highly qualified for this mission because we are inclined to the allurements and seductions. We are able to fail, but also to succeed. We are able to destroy, but also to build. We are able to choose to do great evil, but also to choose to do amazing good. Angels are perfect. They have no negative inclination. They have no free choice. They can't struggle. They can't fail. They cannot choose goodness. Our mission, if we're willing to accept it, is to choose goodness. This is how we serve God. Angels sing God's praises in a perfect heavenly world. However, human praises surpass those of the angels because we praise God from earth, soiled with imperfections, problems, and challenges. This is our greatness. God does not expect us to be perfect. In fact, if we were perfect, we would not have qualified for the mission of Torah. The Talmud teaches that a person can stand in Torah only after he has failed at it. In other words, part of the mission of Torah is to fail, regret, resolve, change, choose goodness, and succeed. We humans are the perfect candidates for the job." End of quote. Adam and Chava were created and placed in this world. They were given the universal laws as their basic form of worship and obedience to God, and they were created with free choice. According to Rabbi Uziel Malevsky in Ne'er Uziel, freedom of choice means that the thought crossed Adam's mind, God tells me to do this, but in theory I could do otherwise. I am capable of doing otherwise. Adam and Chava exercised their right of free choice. Unfortunately, their choice in Gan Eden did not result in the immediate redemption of mankind, but rather set their descendants on a path of tikkun, spiritual repair and correction, that will last until the ushering in of the messianic age, may it be in our days. For almost 6,000 years now, Humans have been alternately fulfilling their human potential or depleting it. For most, life has been neither a, bowl of rose, a bed of roses or a bowl of cherries. However, gamzula tova, this is also for the good. Given human nature, when do we truly exceed our potential? It is a fact of human nature that any act that involves overcoming difficulties is an act that, that promotes personal growth. With the giving of the universal laws, and later the revelation of the Torah, 
together with man's capacity for freedom of choice, God presented all mankind with a lifetime of opportunities for personal growth and connection to our Creator. Remember that the Hebrew word for commandment is mitzvah. The root of the word means to connect. The primary purpose of the commandments of Hashem is to allow man to approach the Creator, connect with God, and enter into a relationship with Him. The degree of closeness one acquires in that relationship depends upon the degree of connection, which of course depends on our faithfulness in observing the commandments that the Torah sets forth for Israel and for the nations of the world. The greater our connection, the higher we elevate and purify our bodies and souls, and the more we reveal God's presence in this world, which of course has the effect of elevating the world around us. Many times there are debates over why Israel was given 613 commandments and the nations only seven. The answer is complex. However, an interesting way one might look at this is that in order for Israel to fulfill our, our appointed role to be a kingdom of priests and witnesses, we have to be very connected to Hashem. This means more commandments in order to ensure that Jews reveal God's presence and reality in our daily lives. This is especially necessary given the fact that most Jews have become secularized and assimilated into Western cultures. If we blend in, how can we possibly stand out as evidence of Hashem in a totally humanistic world? Hence, Israel has more commandments so that those who are Torah observant are truly differentiated from the world. That differentiation, however, must reflect the truth of Hashem's revelation. There are actually less than 300 of the Torah commandments that a normal Jew is able to observe. Many of the laws apply to the temple service, to the land of Israel, to the Kohanim, to the Levites. Some are only for women, others only for men. The many halakhic laws put in place by the sages and rabbis act as gerizim, protective fences or barriers, whose purpose is to keep us as far away from breaking a commandment as possible. Just before his death, Moshe told the children of Israel, Apply your heart to all the words that I testify against you today, with which you are to instruct your children, to be careful to perform all the words of this Torah, for it is not an empty thing for you, it is your life. Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 to 47. Whether we actually keep 613 or less than 300, a Jew is born with a legal obligation to keep all the commandments of the Torah. This obligation is there whether a Jew chooses to live by Torah or not, and we will be judged accordingly. Amongst the nations, each person is born with a choice. Will you, or will you not, approach the one God and creator of the universe in the manner which he has prescribed? The Rambam in Hilchot Melachim, Chapter 8, Halakha 11 brings down the following ruling. Anyone who accepts upon himself the fulfillment of these seven mitzvot and is precise in their observance is considered one of the pious among the Gentiles and will merit a share in the world to come. This applies only when he accepts them and fulfills them because 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu, commanded them in the Torah and informed us through Moses our teacher that even precisely, or even previously, Noach's descendants were commanded to fulfill them. However, if he fulfills them out of intellectual conviction, he is not a resident alien, nor a pious among the Gentiles, nor of their wise men. End of quote. A resident alien, or ger toshav, is a ben or bat noach who formally accepts a legal obligation upon themselves before Beit Din to observe the Noahide laws. In times past, a ger toshav could live as a resident in Eretz Yisrael. What the Rambam is saying in this halakhic ruling is that a Gentile's motivation for keeping the universal laws must be that they are commanded by the Torah, not simply that they can be proven logical and just. Before we proceed to a more specific or talkless definition of Bechera, a free will, I would like to depart from our topic momentarily to make an observation. I do not usually refer to the Christian New Testament. However, I think it bears commenting that once you are aware of the Noahide laws, the instructions that James, as the elder of their religious group, gave to Paul and Barnabas regarding the new converts to their faith were, quite simply put, for the Noahide laws, together with the caveat that the new converts would learn the rest of the applicable Torah laws by attending the synagogues each Shabbat to hear Moshe, meaning hear the reading of the Torah. These instructions are found in Acts 15, verses 20 and 21. James the Elder was instructing Paul, Barnabas, and the crowd who had gathered that their new Gentile adherents were to be good B'nai Noach, the original worship of God that goes all the way back to Gan Eden. It is tragic that those instructions were later used by Paul and subsequent church leaders to deny the eternal validity of the Torah. Now back to our topic. Rebbe Nachman of Breslov once asked, was once asked to define free will. His answer, as given in Lukute Moharan 2.110, was very simple. Free will is in a person's hands. That which he wants to do, he does. That which he does not want to do, he doesn't. The Ramchal and Der Hashem comments that God's purpose in creation was to bestow of his good to another. Since God desired to bestow good, a partial good would not be sufficient. The good that he bestows would have to be the ultimate good that his handiwork would accept. His wisdom therefore decreed that the nature of this true benefaction be his giving created things the opportunity to attach themselves to him to the greatest degree possible for them. The purpose of all that was created was to bring into existence a creature who could derive pleasure from God's own good in a way that would be possible for it. End of quote. This opportunity to attach ourselves to Hashem to the greatest degree possible for each of us is one of the primary reasons for free will. It was necessary for man to be given free will in order to complete God's purpose that his goodness be freely given to the ultimate level desired and acceptable to this singular creature that he created with the capacity to cleave unto God. If God had compelled us to cleave to him, he would be responsible for our choices, including our cleaving to him. 
God's purpose in allowing man to cleave unto his maker and derive pleasure from God's own good to exactly the level and intensity determined by each individual would not have been fulfilled. The example I gave last week was that of a forced marriage or hypnotizing the bride in order to ensure that the marriage goes through. Few people desire a spouse who does not really want to be with them. Nonetheless, God works overtime to ensure that our lives afford us every possible opportunity, through good times and bad, to bring ourselves to the place where we want Him to draw us close so that we can cleave to Him. Man begins life with a pure soul and Bechera, free choice, simply defined as the God-given ability to weigh the merits of any situation and choose good over bad. But that intuition needs to be refined and strengthened by the instruction that only Torah provides. Man is bestowed with a unique power that no other created being has, namely free choice. The Torah teaches that we have an inclination towards good, the Yetzer HaTov, and an inclination towards evil, the Yetzer Hara. The rabbis recognize a positive value to the Yetzer Hara. As mentioned in a previous class, Rashi connects the Yetzer Hara with God's observation on the final day of creation that his accomplishment was very good. God's work on the preceding days was simply described as good. The Talmud tells of a time when three great sages beseeched God that he should remove the Yetzer Hara from the world, that it should be killed. God granted them a three-day period in which the Yetzer Hara was removed from the world. Hens did not lay eggs. Man and wife did not engage in marital relations, and so on. The rabbis explained that without the Yetzer Hara, there would be no marriage, children, commerce, or other fruits of human labor. So we see that the Yetzer Hatov and the Yetzer Hara are best understood not as moral categories of good and evil, but as selfish, selfless versus selfish orientations, either of which, used rightly, can serve God's will. Without the existence of the Yetzer Hara, there would be no merit earned in following God's commandments. Choice is only meaningful if there has indeed been a choice made. Creation was good before, but it became very good when the evil inclination was added. For then it became possible to honestly say that man could make a true choice to obey God's commandments. The following of God's ways has a desirable end in and of itself, that man might derive pleasure from God's goodness in this life, not only the ultimate pleasure of meriting a share in the, of life in the world to come, so we find ourselves balanced between good and evil and able to choose knowingly and willingly which side we will favor. Our choices mold the natures of our, nature of our souls. We either cleave to God or push him away. We are born with a pure spiritual soul and an unenlightened physical body. The soul naturally inclines towards its source, namely God. The body inclines towards its source, namely dust the material and mundane. Body and soul are given to man as a single unit. 
When either one is elevated or debased by our choices and actions, it affects the other. If our soul prevails in its pursuit of God, it elevates the body. If we allow our bodies to prevail and pursue only the material and mundane, we will debase our souls and distance ourselves from Hashem. In order to rectify distance that we have placed between ourselves and God, we must do Teshuvah. We must subjugate our physicality to our soul and intellect and repent. When we transgress God's commandments, we rebel against God. Sin is simply rebellion against God's will for our lives, just as is mirrored in an imperfect and finite way when children disobey their parents. This rebellion debases man's proper nature. Like any loving father, the creator of the universe administers the appropriate level of discipline or chastisement that is needed to remind us of our proper dignity and character. While the consequences of our sins may feel like punishment from God, these consequences are not so much retribution for our wrongs as they are disciplinary actions intended to motivate us to repent and to turn back to our true nature. This process of repentance is called Teshuvah. The ability for man to do Teshuvah is a treasure of immense value. In the book The Chambers of the Palace, the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, it is written that Rabbi Nachman lavishly praised the power of repentance. Even if a person has fallen very low, it is forbidden to, dis to despair. Repentance is even higher than the Torah. Therefore, there is no despair in the world. One's sins can turn into something else entirely. As our sages said, sins can be turned into merits. Yoma 86b This matter contains mystic secrets. One can easily return to God from any descent, because God's greatness has no end. One must simply never give up crying out to God, pleading and praying to Him constantly. End of quote. Rabbi Nachman also taught that even if a person has descended to the depths of Sheol, he should not despair. As David HaMelech wrote in Tehillim 139, verses 7 to 8, where can I escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I ascend to Sheol, you are there too. As we learned last week, there is no place where God is not. Even from the depths of Sheol, one should search for God, strengthen himself and cry out for Hashem's boundless mercy. For there is not one good man on earth who does what is best and does not err. These are the words of Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest man in the world, as recorded in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. Let's now turn to some of the Rambam's ruling from Hilchot to Shuvah. The person who sincerely repents is loved and adored by Hashem as if he had never sinned before. Teshuva atones for all transgressions. A person who committed transgressions throughout his lifetime and then did Teshuva will not be reminded of his transgressions in the next world. One who dies in a state of Teshuva 
merits to have all his transgressions forgiven. Rabbi Waksha quoted Sha'are Teshuvah, chapter 1, letter 1, in his book entitled The Practical Guide to Teshuvah, when he wrote as follows. It is, in, it is written in the Torah that Hashem will help those who yearn to do Teshuvah but lack the attributes to achieve this goal. He will reinvigorate their souls with purity, as it says, and you will repent to Hashem your God, and you will hearken to his voice. Deuteronomy 30, verse 2. Another verse says, And Hashem will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. End of quote. In other words, Hashem promises to cut away the membrane of insensitivity and pride that hardens the heart and hinders a person who desires to repent. So how do we define teshuva? Contrary to the definitions of some other religions, the Torah's definition of repentance is not simply saying you are sorry and asking for mercy. Repentance is a process that begins with sincere regret, with contrition. David HaMelech, in his famous prayer of repentance for his sin with Bathsheba, wrote, True sacrifice to God is a contrite spirit. God, you will not despise a contrite and crushed heart. Tehillim 51, verse 19. Rabbi Arthur Hertzberg, in his book entitled Judaism, wrote as follows. Regret is a great art in which few are expert. The chief purpose of regret is not to feel sorry for evil actions, but to uproot the evil from its very source. Whoever is not expert in this art tends to use his power of regret to strengthen the evil within him and not to weaken it. End of quote. Religions that encourage their adherents to cast responsibility for the forgiveness of sin on an intermediary that teach that simple confession wipes away transgression strengthen the deceptive wiles of the Yetzer Hara. What often follows is a repetition of the sin Another confession, another repetition, followed by another confession. This cycle soon lulls the individual into a lessened Yerat Shemayim, a weakening in his fear of heaven. This particular sin can seem less grave because of the blanket insurance policy that his religion promises when confession represents almost the entirety of repentance. The prophet Yehezkel has given us God's view of sin and repentance. Therefore I will judge every man according to his own ways, O house of Israel, says Hashem God. Return and repent for all your transgressions, so that they shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions by which you have transgressed, and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I desire not the death of anyone, says Hashem God. Therefore return and live. Yehezkel 18, verses 30 to 32. Return. Repent. Cast away. Make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. I desire not the death of anyone. 
return and live. Did you hear anything in this passage about a requirement of human sacrifice? On the contrary, God said, I desire not the death of anyone. A classic example of the mercy of Hashem can be found in Hosea chapter 11 verses 8 and 9 where God cries out to his wayward and exiled children of the northern kingdom of Israel, referred to by the prophet as Ephraim. How can I hand you over Ephraim, or deliver you, Israel? How can I render you like Adma, or make you like Zeboim? My heart has been overturned. My mercies have been kindled together. I will not carry out my wrath. I will not recant and destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One is in your midst. Adma and Zeboim were both cities of the plain that were destroyed at the time of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. What we see in these passages is that God desires that man return to him and return our soul to its intended level of, in of dignity and conduct. This return involves a process. Rabbi Wagshaw in the Practical Guide to Teshuva, writes that Teshuva has two meanings. One, to return to one's original place of departure. And two, to distance oneself from a certain location or situation. In Hilchot Teshuva, Chapter 2, Halacha 2, the Rambam writes that the mitzvah of Teshuva is fulfilled by disassociating oneself from sin. The Beis Elohim writes that the commandment to do Teshuvah is fulfilled by discontinuing past actions. However, he writes that the essential meaning of the term Teshuvah is to come close to Hashem, which is a direct result of distancing oneself from sin, as we discussed earlier when we spoke of cleaving to God. Other Jewish sources describe the accomplishment of repentance as follows. The Hochvot Halevaot writes that Teshuvah implies that an individual must correct himself to the degree that he is once again able to serve God. Sin renders us unsuitable to serve Hashem. Teshuvah is achieved when we return to the spiritual state we were in before we sinned. The Maharal of Prague writes that the essential meaning of Teshuvah is that the transgressor returns to Hashem. Rabbi Wagshaw comments on the verse, Repent, O Israel, to Hashem your God, Hosea 14, verse 2, in his practical guide to Teshuvah. He writes, In other words, return from the place to which you have banished yourself and be once again close to Him. Rabbi Wagshaw compares this return to God to the rebellious son who foolishly leaves home, then after a period of time realizes his error, regrets his actions, and feels a yearning to return home. When he does return, he finds his father absent, and with great intensity of heart begins to search everywhere. Finally, after much effort, he finds his father and cries out to him with tears. Rabbi Weichshal writes as follows. Similarly, transgressors will feel empty and despondent. Unable to find contentment, they will eventually return to their Creator 
and do tshuva. To return, they must fulfill the requirements to call out to Hashem for help. As the verse says, If from there, your place of exile and banishment, you search for Hashem your God, you will find Him, if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4.29 The degree of closeness achieved by this teshuva is proportional to the intensity of the call for help. End quote. Rabbi Wagshaw also tells us that we must uproot the sin and constantly reflect on ways and means to keep ourselves from repeating it. He uses an interesting analogy. This is analogous to one who finds himself in a place infested by mosquitoes and bees. He must first escape. Once he has escaped, he may easily rid himself of the few insects that have followed him. Still, he will have to experience the pain of the insect bites. The meaning of this analogy is easily understood. There are many things that prompt us to repent. Rebuke, tribulations, growing older, fear of hurting someone, fear of the possible consequences of our sin. The bottom line, however, is that the urge to repent and the follow-through must be an exercise of our own free will. No one else can do teshuva for us. No one. The Rambam explains in Hilchot Teshuvah, chapter 5, that teshuvah is an expression of free will. There are four steps involved in teshuva, with a fifth step that is often necessary with certain types of transgression, or rather I should put, with these types of transgression it is always necessary. These elements, as enumerated by the Roshanim, are as follows. Regret, forsaking sin, confession and the request for forgiveness, resolve to refrain from repeating the sin, and restitution where one sin has incurred a loss to another. The sages tell us we must articulate an expression of our regret. We need to hear ourselves express this regret and remorse to God. And if we have transgressed against another person, we need to seek their forgiveness and make practical or monetary restitution when necessary. This articulation of regret and confession causes us to feel shame which is an essential element of true repentance. Feelings of shame and regret reinforce our determination not to repeat the sin. We need to pr propose or purpose within ourselves that we will cast away the particular act or habit and not repeat it. Now, that is not to say that a person never becomes weak and fails in his resolve, but a repetitive cycle of sin and confession does not make the grade. The sin then becomes intentional and that is a grave situation. When one's heart becomes so hardened that the sin has lost its shame and can somehow be justified, then it becomes nearly impossible for a person to sincerely repent. And without sincere repentance, there's no forgiveness.
The Rambam writes that transgressions committed against one's fellow man, for example theft or causing damage, are not forgiven unless the transgressor first monetarily reimburses the damaged party and subsequently succeeds in appeasing him. Even though he has reimbursed him monetarily, he must appease him and ask for forgiveness. End of quote. Lest one should think that simply reimbursement will do the trick, the Rambam advises that each of the steps of teshuva is necessary. He writes, Even though he has reimbursed him for the damage he caused him, the transgressor will not be forgiven by Hashem until he confesses his sins and resolves to refrain from repeating this transgression in the future. End of quote. What if we have sinned against someone and have sincerely sought their forgiveness, but they are unwilling to forgive? The rabbis tell us that we must go to the person and seek their forgiveness sincerely three times. If, after the third such request, the individual is still unwilling to extend forgiveness, the responsibility for the sin passes to their account. So we see that it is as important to forgive as it is to seek forgiveness. If we take upon ourselves all the steps necessary for sincere repentance, we have God's abundant promises throughout Tanakh that he will forgive. As recorded by the prophet Isaiah, God invites us to come now and let us reason together, says Hashem. If your sins are like scarlet, they will become white as snow. If they have become red as crimson, they will become white as wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the goodness of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of Hashem has spoken. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. The sages tell us that sincere repentance may mitigate the consequences of our sins in some cases. But there are other sins where the best deterrent for the future, as well as proper justice, is that we experience the consequences of the sin even if or after we've done teshuva. Let's wrap up our section on teshuva with Rambam. In Hilchot Teshuva, chapter 2, Halacha 2, the Rambam asks, What is teshuva? It is when the sinner refrains from continuing to sin and resolves to refrain from committing the transgression in the future. He must also feel regret over his past actions, confess his past sins, and vocalize the resolve to refrain from committing sins in the future. End of quote. Now, the final section of our Shior for today. Hashkaha Pratis. What is it? In simple terms, it means divine providence. In our last class on knowing God, we determined that everything that exists does so only because God, in his infinite wisdom, deems the various creations and phenomena necessary for furthering his purposes with creation as a whole. The words creation as a whole are central to divine providence. Even at the level of individual providence that Hashem bestows upon each man, woman, and child, 
Whatever happens in our respective, unique, and individual lives happens ultimately for the good of creation as a whole and as a consequence for the ultimate good of ourselves. Everything in creation has a purpose, operates according to a divinely ordained set of laws, and is maintained in order maintained in that order by God for so long as it is fulfilling its purpose in the greater scheme of all creation. Everything in the physical world has its origin and cause in the spiritual realms. The Shafa, or sustenance, each receives is reflected down to it from the spiritual realms according to the order God has put in place. There are many levels, steps, and concepts involved in this intricate system of sustaining creation. And the creator of the universe oversees each step in accordance with the powers and the laws that he has ordained. The case of man, however, is special. According to the Ramchal, Moshe Chaim Zato, in his classic work, Derek Hashem, quote, The human race is different from all other species, since it was given free will and the ability to involve itself with both perfection and deficiency. Man is therefore an active, moving influence, and not something that is merely acted upon. The providence dealing with man must therefore also be different from that concerning other species. In the case of man, it must oversee and scrutinize every detail of his activities and bring about things that are the result of his ways and the fruit of his deeds. Each one of a person's deeds, as well as their results, are scrutinized, and providence is then extended to him in the particular manner that suits their consequences, and the individual is judged measure for measure. This is not true, however, of any species other than man. The members of the species, the other species, are acted upon, but have no influence themselves. They merely exist to maintain the species as a whole, according to the nature of its spiritual root. Providence is thus merely extended to maintain the root and its branches, according to the inherent nature and function of that root. Human beings, on the other hand, act and exert influence as individuals. They therefore require individual providence and everything must be the result of their deeds, no more and no less." End quote. We've learned that the purpose of man's creation was that man should become worthy of attaining true good and deriving pleasure from God's goodness to the extent that each desires and is able. The end goal for man is to attain tranquility in the world to come. But God's wisdom has decreed that the best way to achieve this is for man to first exist in this present physical world with all its challenges. This world is a preparation for the world to come. This preparation has two aspects, the individual and humanity as a whole, that each should attain perfection. Because man has free will, and both a yetzer hatov and a yetzer hara, the human race contains individuals who are good, those who are evil, and those who seem to be uh, a little bit of both. Ultimately, as God's plan for world redemption reveals itself, the evil in the world will be cast aside, and the good will be gathered to form one perfected community, 
the Olam Haba, the world to come, is prepared for those who have striven for and attained unto good. Given that this potential and reality of having a mixture of good and evil in the world exists, divine providence works to ensure that the community is protected for the world to come. This involves a system of reward and punishment. The Ramchal addresses this in Derek Hashem. Quote, Proper judgment would require that all of a person's deeds be judged, great and small, whether they constitute the majority or the minority. The highest wisdom therefore decreed that man's recompense be divided into two periods and places, with regard to reward as well as punishment. All of a person's deeds are divided into two groups, that of the majority and that of the minority. After the majority and minority are determined, the majority are judged by themselves in the proper time and place. The same is true of the minority of one's deeds. Now the true main reward in the world is in the world to come. As we noted, the everlasting recompense of the worthy individual is a bond of closeness with him forever whereas the punishment is being thrust away from this true good and perishing. The judgment was set up, however, to be in accordance with the majority of one's deeds. The good deeds of the wicked and the evil deeds of the righteous, which constitute a minority, are dealt with in this world through gratifications and sufferings. It is in this world that the wicked are rewarded with prosperity for their few virtues, while the righteous are punished with suffering for their few faults. In the end, Hashem compensates every deed, and whatever compensation remains to be given in the next world is that which is fitting for the next world's perfection. That is, the next world is only for the righteous, and the wicked are totally absent. End of quote. Now let me just read a sentence of that again. The good deeds of the wicked and the evil deeds of the righteous which constitute a minority, are dealt with in this world through its gratifications and sufferings. That means that the experiences that we have in our life, the times when we find things really tough going, and we're wondering, Hashem, why, why do I have all this, this source, this trouble in my life? It's at those times that actually our sins are being atoned for. It really helps one to perhaps embrace the hardships of life a bit more easily. If we can remind ourselves that quite often the difficulties we encounter in our life are the times when Hashem in His mercy is allowing us to atone for our sins in this world so that we don't have to in the Olam Haba. Now we need to bear in mind that God oversees everything. He sustains our lives from day to day and orchestrates divine intervention in our lives as he deems appropriate in each situation. He constantly takes into account the ultimate general perfection. All creation revolves around this concept and it affects each of us in different ways at different stages of our spiritual maturation. Divine providence therefore determines whether one should be drawn close to God or cast away, and whether one is purified in this world by suffering or left alone. The Ramchal tells us that everyone is dealt with in accordance with what he or she deserves 
in such a manner so as to advance the perfection of creation as a whole. The entire procedure and system of God's providence involves the fairest possible rule of justice. God's providence, his law, and his justice all originate in his love. A loving father must discipline for the good of a child, and at times strictly, just as he will also pour out reward and praise when it's appropriate. Because of man's unique nature of having been created with Bechera, free will, to a degree God has subjugated his providence to man's actions, subjugating man to good or evil as our de deeds warrant. However, in truth, God is not bound or subject to any rule and can impose his sovereign superiority whenever and however he chooses for the ultimate good of creation. So it's possible that some of our sins might be mitigated by our doing teshuva. Other times in his justice and for our own good and the good of creation, even if we've done teshuva, we still have to bear the consequence of that sin, but we can assure it will be just. In Derek Hashem, the Ramchal tells us that divine providence is divided into two general categories. One concerns man physically, in terms of success and prosperity versus tribulation and suffering in this present world. The other concerns man spiritually. This second area of divine providence involves man's intellect and reason, his drawing close to God, and his spiritual advantages and disadvantages. Optimum good in this world is spiritual prosperity, not physical riches. It is a world where man grasps the path of wisdom and engages in devotion to the Creator, a world where good is maintained and strengthened while the wicked are prosecuted and subjugated and deception no longer exists. Everything in such a world involves some aspect of devotion to God. This is a world where peace and security prevail and there is no longer pain, suffering or injury. The Ramchal tells us that God openly projects his glory on such a world and he rejoices in his handiwork. Similarly, his handiwork is happy and rejoices before him. This is the world we have to look forward to during the Messianic era. The opposite of this world comes as a result of man's pursuit of physical desires, rejecting the wisdom of the Creator in the process. The wicked become strong and the good are deprived of status. We need not look very far to find evidence that this is true. The Ramchal tells us that the history of mankind mirrors that of the individual. An individual is born and grows to maturity. So too the human race. In Derach Hashem, the Ramchal identifies humanity's four states of being, from birth to maturity. The first stage was Adam to the division of tongues at the Tower of Babel. It was a time when ignorance and darkness prevailed and true knowledge of God was greatly obscured. The second stage is the one in which we now live, wherein we have knowledge of the existence and perfection of God, we have access to his Torah, and we have freedom to serve him. However, it is a time without true prophecy, 
and Ruach HaKodesh is sadly lacking. Man can accomplish much in his efforts to know God by using his intellect in human endeavor, but this pales in comparison to true spiritual enlightenment bestowed by God. The third state is higher. It existed when the Beit HaMikdash stood. When the temple stood on Har Habayit, there were wonders and miracles, and prophecy was granted to God's chosen prophets. But even with God's prophets of old, the prophetic state was not always easily attained. The fourth state, the spiritual maturation of humanity, is yet to come. It will be a time when folly will cease to exist, and divine inspiration, Ruach HaKodesh, will be poured out on all mankind, easily attained without effort. From this time on, mankind will experience constant elevation and will delight in their Creator forevermore. In closing, I would like to repeat an excerpt from Rabbi David Aaron's teaching, The Mission of the Torah. We mentioned it at the beginning of the class, but it bears repeating. God does not expect us to be perfect. In fact, if we were perfect, we could not have qualified for the mission of Torah. The Talmud teaches that a person can stand in Torah only after he has failed at it. In other words, part of the mission of Torah is to fail, regret, resolve, change, choose goodness, and succeed. We humans are the perfect candidates for the job. In other words, we're to use our Bechera to choose good over evil. We are to participate in the process of sincere teshuva, and we are to realize the Hashgaha Pratis, Divine Providence, is at work in our lives daily, and that many times the things that we chafe against are actually the mercy of Hashem bestowing and allowing atonement for our sins now as opposed to in the world to come. Okay, that's it for this week's class. Next week, the topic will be 7 or 70, an exploration of the seven universal laws. Now, there is a change in schedule for next week. Next week's class will be on Tuesday, not Thursday, and it will be at 11 a.m. EST, at 6 p.m. in Israel, instead of at 5 or 10 a.m. So I hope that you will uh, be able to make the class next week on the change date. Also, uh, we have, I have about four or five minutes before I will have to close the room uh, because I have a meeting to go to. Does anyone have a question that they'd like to put up on the board? Cornelius is asking, where does Christianity take the claims that Jews need to keep every law to make it? Well, <clears throat> Cornelius, we do, um, you came into the class uh, a little late, 
I mentioned at the first of the class, I don't know if you were in the class at that point in time, but you know, we are incumbent, it is incumbent upon Jews, uh, we're born with the obligation that we have to keep all of the Torah. Now that is, you know, 613 positive and negative commandments together with the accompanying halachot that have been put in place uh, that are explained in the Torah Shabal Pei and also the various rulings by the rabbis, the gerizim, the fences that are there to protect us from breaking a commandment. But, as I also explained, the normal Jew, at least this time in history, in the history of man, the normal Jew can really only keep uh, less than 300. The temple's not standing. Many of the commandments are only for uh, the Kohanim, the Levaim, in concerning the, the temple sacrifices and services. They're commandments that uh, we can only do if we could bring sacrifices, korbanot, to the temple for the Moadim, the feasts. And so without the temple standing, we can't do them. There are other commandments that can only be done in Eretz Yisrael. In fact, many commandments can only really be fulfilled in Eretz Yisrael. Well, only about half the Jews in the world are living here now. And we only hit that mark in the last year. There are other commandments that are strictly for women. There are other commandments that are strictly for men. We are to keep all of the commandments that we can keep in the days and the times in which we live according to our tribal designations, according to our gender. And we are to uh, realize that in the days to come that we will be able to keep more. Now, I think Christianity's position that we have to uh, keep you know, every single one is simply a lack of understanding of the mechanics of how the Torah works and how the mitzvot themselves work. So I think it's a lack of understanding um, because as you know Christianity considers the Torah something that's dead and gone. But we know, thank God, that it's not. As Riala says, our spiritual growth depends on how we overcome difficulties, as I said. Um, but if we succeed to overcome complaining and crying, for example, is that bad for our growth? Can we say that our spiritual growth is not as perfect as it must be? Azriella, that is a beautiful question. Thank you for asking it. In Devarim, I believe, uh, chapter 8 or thereabouts, there is one of my most favorite verses. And what it says is that we must serve Hashem with rejoicing. That if we do, if we keep the commandments begrudgingly, if we give tzedakah, if we give charity begrudgingly, if we help somebody begrudgingly, and without joy in the fulfillment of the mitzvah, that the mitzvah is not acceptable. So when we... I mean, Hashem is merciful. He understands. He looks upon our heart. It says, uh, Jeremiah said, the heart and the kidneys. He searches the heart and the kidneys. And that means the intellect and, and the heart. It, you know, the problem has been, for so many of us, you know, particularly those amongst the nations, and I was certainly out there at one point in time, and I'm just, a, you know, for all intents and purposes, a baby Jew. Um... 
we haven't understood how the Torah works. And so, you know, we've responded to difficulties in our lives because we haven't understood this amazing reality that the difficulties that are divinely allowed within our lives, and, and we determine what those difficulties are to a degree. It's our choice. We choose whether to keep the mitzvot or to rebel against them. So we will merit whatever our de deeds warrant. But we haven't understood that. We haven't known that. And so when trouble has come, even though it was for our good and was atoning for our sins, we didn't know it. And so we complain and we moan and we cry and, hey, I'm, I'm guilty. I've been there. I've done it. And so, you know, it's a lesson. It's a beautiful thing to impress upon our consciousness that we, that the next time difficulties come our way, there's a couple of reasons why that are most likely. One, it could be a kapara, an atonement for something we've done that we shouldn't have done. And if we remind ourselves of that, then we can embrace it and it won't be quite so difficult to bear. But there's also something else. And I shared this last week at the end of the class. There are times when we are not ready yet for the next stage of our spiritual growth. And so what happens, and this was told to me personally by Rav Kenning, who is uh, one of the the leading tzaddik in the Breslov movement. He lives in Spot. An amazing man. The presence of Hashem just glows from him. And he says there's times before we make an ascent spiritually. when If we're not ready, Hashem has to knock us off the path. He has to knock us off our feet so that we become moldable. The example is used by the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah of Hashem as a potter and we are the clay. And in Jeremiah, Hashem describes taking the vessel. He says, O house of Israel, you know, are you not the pot in the potter's hand? And can I not do with you as I will? Uh, you know, that he would break us and then remake us. And so there are times in life when we get, uh, we're a vessel. Every human being is a vessel for the, for the, the presence, the glory of Hashem. And there's times when that vessel has to be broken or tossed off the shelf temporarily so that we become clay that the Creator can mold again to make us a stronger and better and bigger vessel. Um, I think we have one more question perhaps coming. It's now 6 o'clock. Uh, I'm sorry, but I am going to have to close the room uh, really quite quickly. Um, in order to get the, the class recorded. Uh, okay. Um, Roger is saying, regarding Corny's question, is it at all possible that Christianity fails to take into consideration the repentance of Yom Kippur for Jews and Sukkot time for non-Jews, Noahides? Just because someone or anyone fails to keep all the laws doesn't disqualify... Uh, and that's the end of what came up. Um, that's correct. Uh, Yom Kippur uh, is a concept that really is not understood by Christianity, nor is the fullness of Sukkot understood uh, by Christianity. I mean, they consider the, the feast days to be, uh, you know, of no consequence now. And we must bear in mind that during Sukkot, each of the days of Sukkot, korbanot, sacrifices, are brought 
for the atonement of the nations. In fact, 70 sacrifices are bought are brought during the Feast of Sukkot when the temple is standing uh, for the nations. And we'll remember that at the Tower of Babel that, you know, and thereafter, um, that the nations of the world were divided, you know, into 70 nations uh, according to the number of the Israelites that went down into Mitzrayim. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, everyone. I wish I could stay longer, um, but I am going to have to close the class for now. Uh, please, uh, I hope that you uh, are able to make the class next week. If you wish to re-listen to the class, it will be on at 8 o'clock tonight in, on Noahide Nations. And as well, it will be uh, up on our website, www.shuvu.com, S-H-U-V-O-O.com. Uh, should be up there, God willing, uh, late this evening, if not first thing in the morning. So, shalom everyone from Jerusalem, and uh, have a wonderful week, a wonderful uh, Yom Shavai, the Sabbath day. And God willing, we will talk to you again next week. Shalom, shalom.